Welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly and newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. I'm your host each week. You may know me or recognize my ingratiating voice as the host of our other podcast on Leadership with Scott Miller, now the world's largest weekly leadership podcast. And from the success of that, we spun off a new version where each week I am privileged and honored and always enlightened by having conversations with people who have earned their way into the C-Suite. And today, we had Melissa Proctor. She is the EVP and Chief Marketing Officer for the Atlanta Hawks Basketball Club and State Farm Arena. Joining us from Atlanta, Georgia, Melissa, welcome to today's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored to be here. Perhaps most importantly, you are, of course, a mom and you are an author of this phenomenal book, From Ball Girl to CMO. We'll talk about your book here in just a moment. Melissa, I told you off camera, I was very excited to have you join us today because your journey is so relatable. I also think it's replicable, which is most important. Yeah. I, I, you have tenacity, initiative, grit. You have resilience. You have all the things I want my three sons, who are 8, 10, and 12, to accomplish in life because with what you've brought to the table, I think anybody can replicate. That isn't to minimize your journey. Obviously, you are well-educated. You've earned your way in the C-suite. But how you got started was from a set of skills that I think anybody can replicate if they are willing. So would you take a few minutes and maybe reorient our audience to your role, who you are, where you live, and then we'll get into what that journey was that I think is so potentially replicable for anybody on their way to the C-suite? Absolutely. Well, again, my name is Melissa Proctor. I'm the EVP and Chief Marketing Officer of the Atlanta basketball team and State Farm Arena based here in Atlanta, Georgia. I've been in Atlanta for about 20 years now, originally from Miami, Florida. But you know, in my role currently um, within the CMO of the Hawks, I have around nine or 10 different teams that report into me. So it's everything that really involves brand relevance and how do we drive brand and have people have a special place in their heart for the Atlanta Hawks. Advertising, promotion, our in-game experience, our retail and brand merchandising, all of our social, digital, uh, mobile efforts, um, our entertainment industry relations, which is a new role that we recently created, all of our corporate social responsibility, basketball programs, camps and clinics. So you name it, we're doing it. And Melissa, your book, From Ball Girl to CMO, was not just a catchy title. It really is the literal transformation of your career. Would you take your time, and I want you to rewind and talk about the phone calls and the phone calls and the phone calls <laughs> and how you, you persevered with a level of grit that most people would have given up long beforehand, either been dissuaded or misdirected or such. I want you to recreate that journey so everybody listening still understands the relevance of persistence and hard work and how they can keep teaching that to their team members and to their children. Yeah, you know, I think what's really interesting about my story is I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Mm. I didn't know as a kid and I still don't know now. And I think that openness has helped a lot in my journey. And so I mentioned I'm originally from Miami. My mother was from Belize and my father was from Jamaica. So I was first generation born in the United States. And, you know, growing up, I developed a passion for art. I love drawing, love painting. I ended up going to a magnet art school in Miami for uh, art for middle school as well as high school. And when I was around 15, I was at a school called Design and Architecture Senior High, where I was a graphic design major in like 10th grade. And I remember talking to my mom and telling her I wanted to get a job. And, you know, my friends were getting jobs at the mall, the movie theater. And so I figured I would just get like a cool retail job. And she was like, well, 
you can only get a job in whatever you want to do for the rest of your life, which is a lot asking a 15 year old. And so I thought about it and I said, you know, I loved doing art and I didn't want to be a struggling artist. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I wanted to do something that had impact. And I had a cousin who watched basketball and she introduced me to the Miami Heat. We would watch games on TV and I fell in love with it. And so I told my mom I was going to become the first female coach in the NBA. Um, I still don't think she knew what NBA stood for. And, you know, she said, OK, go get a job in the NBA. And just as easy as she said it, I then knew that I had no other choice. And that's what I had to do. And so literally at 15 years old, to your point, I started making phone calls. I let my fingers do the walking yellow pages, found a 1-800 number, called the customer service person with the heat. Uh, ended up getting in touch with someone in community relations. They said, kid, I don't know what you can do here. Try the equipment manager. And so I got in touch with the equipment manager and ultimately a guy named Jay Sable, can never forget him. He kind of discouraged me, you know, and I started writing letters. I would draw on the envelopes and on the letters, images of players and heat logos and basketballs, just anything to stand out. And so I kept calling him, kept calling him. One day he said, kid, if you keep calling me, I'm not going to hire you. And so I stopped for a while, then I kept calling And then one day we finally had a conversation and he, you know, really explained what the role was. He was like, right now they're all ball boys. We don't have any girls. It's grunge work. It's coming early, staying late, mopping up sweat, folding towels, hanging uniforms. Oh, and by the way, it doesn't pay. And so, you know, at the end of the night, you may get tipped from the visiting team's uh, equipment manager. And I didn't care. I was so invested at that point. I was like, okay, I I want in. Let's do it. And so finally, after that, he invited me into a preseason game at the then Miami Arena. It was the first time I ever been to a live professional sporting event at all. Um, And that was the beginning of my career in sports as a ball girl on the court for the Heat, because, you know, back then women weren't allowed in the locker rooms and it was a very different time. Melissa, if you were teaching a career course on franklincovey.com or linkedinlearning.com and you wanted to extrapolate the the key lessons out of that portion of our conversation for people developing their career, for parents helping their children learning how to monetize their education, what are the two or three key lessons that everyone should know from that portion of your journey? You know, one thing, and it's interesting, as a CMO, I I tell people all the time, people don't realize that they need to market themselves to get a job. You know, and they think, oh, I have a resume, you know, I have this experience, I have this education, but I didn't realize that I was defining myself as a brand through the communications that I had. One, obviously having persistence, being able to call and be persistent and hear no, but keep going was definitely something that's a critical skill. But the second is understanding how to market myself. And I never took a marketing class, you know, before then or even in college, but the idea of defining my brand. And so I stood out because of the designs that I put on the envelopes and, you know, in the letters that I wrote. And that was really important piece. And I think at the end of the day, my mother was so incredibly instrumental in creating this opportunity to really let me feel or know that I could do anything. So there was no plan B, there was no backup. It's this is what you're going to do and you're going to do it by any means necessary. And I think having that push behind me of someone that had faith in me in order to realize that I could do that if that's what I wanted to do was probably most important in giving me the, uh, the feeling that I could actually take it there and make it happen. It's almost as if you had an inverse correlation between the lack of faith others might have had in you and your faith you had in yourself. <laughs> when others had the least faith is when you sort of doubled down on yourself. And I think in many ways that's very inspiring to people 
your message is, you know, when others maybe aren't paying attention is when you need to ramp it up, is when others mm -hmm. aren't believing in you as much is when you need to double down. A lot of people get discouraged and they mirror the energy or the validation of others, but you in many ways see it almost as like a fire in your belly. The, the least you pay attention to me, oh, the more you will at some point. <laughs> And you know what's interesting with that is I didn't know what I didn't know. Yeah. And having that, you know, I didn't ba have the boundaries curse of clearly, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have the curse of knowledge. And so with that, I didn't realize that most of the other people who were there had connections, knew players, knew someone who worked for the organization. I knew no one. I was a kid from the hood in Miami that had parents that didn't know anything about American sports, didn't even come from the country. And so being able to create this opportunity and this space to get a foot in the door yeah. to mop up but of all things, was one of the most amazing opportunities. And I say it to this day, it was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. Yeah. Because in that role, I had to interact with everyone from the ownership of the team to celebrities sitting behind me every game to the other ball kids, the security staff, the janitorial staff. And it really showed me, you know, like everyone matters. Everyone has a role to play. There's no one better than anybody else because without everyone working together, nothing will happen. You should run for the Senate because you're likable <laughs> and you're relatable. Melissa, uh, share, before we get into maybe some uh, customer engagement and CO kind of talk, CMO talk, uh, share the story with Dennis Rodman. <laughs> so Dennis Rodman was my absolute favorite player in the NBA when I was a kid. Like I loved him when he was in Detroit, when he was with the Bulls and probably my creativity and my art. I just appreciated this colorful hair, the nail polish, the whole nine. And I remember reading his book when he did that whole stint in the wedding dress um, when his book came out. And so because it was my favorite player, I remember did a, I did a painting of him and it was inspired by his book that I read and had Pearl Jam and like a Buddha statue in it. And I created it and I loved it so much. And I said, you know, I'm going to give it to him. And so one game when the Heat played the Bulls, he was in town. And I remember after the game, walking up to him with this, you know, huge rolled up piece of artwork. And I was like, you know, Mr. Robin, I created this for you. I'm such a huge fan. And he took it and he opened it. He's like, oh man, this is beautiful. And he rolled it up and put it in his purple glitter backpack. And it's like, I'm putting this up in my house in Chicago. And I don't know if he ever did or not, but it just gave me, <laughs> I was the most excited I've ever been wearing my airworm Nikes because I was a huge fan. And so to this day, every time I think of it, I'm like, wow, that is Robin. I was in Newport Beach, California a few months ago. Uh, on, a, on a book writing trip with my oldest son. We saw Dennis Rodman at the Nordstrom shopping for shoes at wow. like the West Coast Plaza <laughs> Mall or something. An odd sighting, right? Anyway, um, let's talk about uh, customer engagement. Um, assume you're speaking to the Fortune 5000 C-suite, the Inc. 5000 C-suite, people that are in sort of everyday, maybe more traditional businesses. What mm -hmm. can they learn from the sports and entertainment world around Client engagement, customer engagement. What are some of the lessons that you've learned as the CMO and EVP that whether someone is in you know, the lingerie business or the tulip business or the insurance business, selling cars, what are some, some principles you've learned that everybody could benefit from around increasing, maintaining, sustaining customer engagement? You know, it's so interesting because when I was in college, my goal in life uh, was to be an anthropologist at that point because I took one cultural anthropology class and fell in love with it. And they ended up losing the major and I never did it. And I didn't realize how important that work was in terms of gathering data, both qualitative and quantitative and making decisions that I now utilize every day within our marketing work. And so my passion has always been branding and brand strategy. And so before we even can get to customer engagement, I'm such a huge believer in defining a brand and a tight brand and having a defined target audience. 
And that's one of the things that we did with the Atlanta Hawks when I first got here. And it was, who are we especially for? And we realized that, you know, traditionally, especially in sports, we want to be for sports fans. Everyone loves sports. You know, it's a very broad ideology. But if you think about here in Atlanta, people move here from all over. So if you're from New York and you move to Atlanta, there's nothing I can get you to do to be a Hawks fan because you will be a Knicks fan through and through. And a lot of that generational fan passion that you get with basketball it really seeps in. But in order to grow a business, you need to be able to onboard new audiences. And so we really saw that and thought about that and decided that we were going to create a target audience for next generation Atlantans. So if you came from New York and you're here, not out of 10 times you stayed and then you had kids here. So we really work to engage the next generation. And how do we do that through everything, through our retail, through our partnerships, through concerts that we may have in the building through influencers that we work with. And for the most part, one of the things that is probably the most um, relevant is connectivity is through community. And so we've done a tremendous job with our basketball programs and our CSR efforts to really look at our community impact, but starting with youth. So there's a lot of research that says, you know, if a kid plays a sport, their predisposition to want to attend a sporting event or be a fan of that sport down the line is greater. And so we are really focused on how do we impact 1 million youth in Atlanta through our basketball camps and clinics and programming. And so I really believe from my standpoint, it's authenticity. Our brand mantra is being true to Atlanta, but then also really defining that target audience and going for them relentlessly is critical for positive fan engagement. And we call it generational fan building. You know, Melissa, that's I think one of the things that I liked most about you prior to meeting you today. I interview a lot of C-suite and famous celebrities. And with you, I was most excited because as I read your book and did the research, one of the things that I think stands out about you is you're a long-term thinker. So many of us in business are incented to think short-term, this quarter's results, this next week's team, ticket sales for next month. But you really are passionate about building the next generation of fans, customers, and clients. And my sense is you won't be the CMO of the Atlanta Hawks for your entire career. Maybe you will. You've had an amazing career before that, and I'm sure there's more in the future for you. But you really are about building an enduring brand. You're, you're setting up the brand so that the next CMO, whether that's next year or next decade, has inherited a sustainable operation. How do you balance that important short-term thinking that, of course, you're paid upon and sent upon and keep your job upon with building systems and structures and strategies and a brand that sets the team and the company up for success 10, 20, 30 years down the road? Well, I, I believe with the sports teams, we have luxury, you know, because of the, you know, the Atlanta Hawks, the NBA has been around 75 plus years. And so there's a lot of longevity already attached to that, different than being a part of a startup and launching a new brand. But I think, you know, for us within the Atlanta Hawks and this organization, there are always going to be trends and things are jumping on. So some of that may be, you know, who we invite to games, what do we do? And it's innovation. We try a lot of things and not everything works. And I've always been a huge believer that, you know, if we try something, you know, fail fast, know that we did that and move on to the next thing. And I think that's one of the ways that I look at short term. We still have to try. We consistently have to try. And my background is an artist and creative. Now I look at instead of making paintings and artwork, how do we find creative solutions to business challenges? And some of that, you know, may involve just adapting and being very flexible to market conditions. We've done a decent job of that. And I think the pandemic was one of those things where, you know, we did a lot of things in the physical world. Our entire business is bringing people together <laughs> for a live experience. And that's the exact thing we could not do. And so by creating digital offerings and things outside of that, got to continue some of the work we were doing, even in basketball programming, 
we created a platform called Hawks at Home to continue to do that, where you know the hard work of learning skills and development, that never changes. And so you're still able to do that, but looking at it in nuanced ways and new ways to engage this next generation. So I believe, you know, on a regular basis, we're doing things in the short term that we think, oh, this could work. And if it doesn't, all right, it didn't, let's try something else, but still maintaining that brand integrity over time and really doing what's best for our city. Our ownership team came in and one of the very first things Tony Ressler said is we are a civic asset. Before we are a basketball team, we exist to serve our community. And I think it's awesome when your personal goals and values align with your company's goals and values, because it makes that type of work that you're talking about even better. I recently interviewed a, a vice president of marketing at Nike, and I asked her uh, a dangerous question. I didn't, mean to, I didn't mean to back her in a corner. I asked her the question, do you think athletes are role models? And she answered it to the best of her comfort. I'm guessing you have an opinion on that. If, if the Atlanta Hawks believe that first and foremost, your basketball team, your club, is a civic asset, there must be some correlation with the social responsibility your players have off the courts. To some extent, talk about that. Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting thing because I'll say it as a CMO, I am in one of the most precarious positions because I don't control my product. So season to season, I can't tell you who's on our team. I don't make the decisions of who's on the team. I know we don't find out until the world finds out who's on our team. And so with that being said, I've had to be very focused on how we do that through our brand. And so even around issues like social justice, we may have a head coach or a player who's very vocal in that space. And I think it's great. There are people before there are anything else. Some are comfortable, some are not. And do I think they have a sense of responsibility? There are people looking up to them. Absolutely. But people are looking up to a lot of other folks. So it's really around what they decide to do with it. Um, but as a team, we've really looked at economic empowerment. So we said, you know, we can talk about social justice. We really want to do the work to help create, you know, parity inequity in, in, on the playing field. And so as an organization, we've been doing a lot in Atlanta with entrepreneurs, especially entrepreneurs of color, and really supporting that in this city so that they can create new jobs and create new opportunities for the future. But in terms of players, you know, it's a slippery slope because some are very vocal, you know, and that's respected. But as a team, and especially a CMO of a team, I can't count on any of that representing what our brand represents. We have to do that internally as an organization. Melissa, nicely said. I, I want to talk about your experience prior to the, the Atlanta Hawks at Turner, at Turner Broadcasting. Before I go there, take us behind the scenes in the NBA. Uh, we live in Salt Lake City. Like My family lives literally downtown Salt Lake. We can walk to the arena. Right. And my wife drags me because uh, uh, my wife is a rabid uh, jazz fan with our three sons. And I'm interested to know, what, what, what would fans find interesting in the experience that perhaps we don't know how it's created? Like, I noticed that, you know, whenever there's a celebrity in the audience, they always pan the person. Usually it's Ice-T or someone like that, or Ice Cube or someone. Um, do, you, do, you, do you specifically look at who's in town for some other reason and you, and you give them tickets to the game so you can build the group up? What are some things we might be interesting to know that wouldn't disappoint us? Oh, man, that's, that's so hard. There's so many things, you know, even the way that the game is put on. It's on a production. A it's, I mean, it's like a, it's like a Broadway would, production. You know, one of the most interesting things that I learned, and I was doing a board presentation, we were looking at the complexity of the business of sports. And people don't realize, you know, our State Farm Arena, not only do am I CMO of the team, but also of the arena. So we have a number of events. We are probably one of the largest restaurants in the city of Atlanta with the number of people we have to feed on a nightly basis and, you know, and food that comes in and out of that building, which is huge. Security on a regular basis, trying to get security across the board 24-7 in the building. You think about, you know, 
HVAC and IT and all these other things that happen in our building, in addition to our retail business and our ticketing business. Um, and so it's very, very interesting. So all of those parties are at play every game day. We have you know hundreds of people that we employ every day to come in from a part-time perspective to create amazing game entertainment for the fans. And so, you know, when you ask around things like celebrities, I literally created a role on my team last season called entertainment industry relations. So very often, I mean, depending on the popularity of the team, you know, right now we have people who are buying season tickets and coming out to our games who are huge, you know, celebrities, entertainers here in Atlanta. And every now and then, you know, we have a corporate partnership opportunity um, where we have seats where we would get celebrities to come in and we would look for those with intent. But for the most part, you know, this is a city of entertainment. And because of that, I hired this role specifically to go out to film production companies and, you know, whether it's scouting and having people look at our building as an opportunity or a place to scout. There have been tons of commercials and movies and scenes shot in our arena. And all this is happening behind the scenes from a very small team of people who work tirelessly to make it happen. You've also written extensively and been interviewed around the role that technology plays in brand building and in marketing and the, the risks we play in having technology platforms be siloed. You've written a lot about and talked about the importance of understanding the depth of your tech stack and things like that. Um, in the short time we have on this topic, before we pivot to your role at Turner, what, what would you like other CMOs, other CEOs, for that matter, any leader to know about the role that technology plays, perhaps dangerously, because it can become a bit of a big, you know, abyss and a boondoggle. And what have you learned about the role that, what have you learned about the risks and the benefits of your tech stack, so to speak? Well, you know, I've learned that from a live event perspective, it's imperative that people are present because we're exploring everything that helps to automate and make things easier with may not necessarily use as many people, but can create more efficient experiences for fans. And while we've done a great job with that from a game experience perspective, we also know that without the people, we can't create the, the experience that we have for our fans. Internally, I'll say from a technology standpoint, there is so much data that our marketing team has access to across every you know, paid media ad that we may put out, what we do internally, partnering with Ticketmaster, you name it. There's so much information that we have about our fans, how they move and what they do, but our biggest issue has been insights. And so gathering all this data is great and every dashboard, you know, has been fantastic, but we really have had to work a lot harder with our analytics team and now with our CIO on how are we going to look at this information, gather it, make sure we have all the right pieces and points to put it together to really generate the insights to help us make smarter business decisions. And so as we look at that internally, I think we have an amazing team doing that. The one thing that I'm consistently trying to get my team to look at is, you know, I'll take social media as an example. We're on all of these platforms, but how do we look at innovation? How do we look at being on these platforms in new and unique ways to reach our fans and generate, you know, return on ad spend if, if we're going to create opportunities to market within that space? And how do we cut through the clutter? Melissa, pivot for a moment to um, uh, brand transitions. There has been a number of sports teams that have needed to change their name, their logo, because of certain public social you know, connotations and such, including a, a team in Atlanta, not one of your teams. Any advice you would give the sport industry that's going through that perhaps necessary transition or other organizations that are meeting uh, you know, a new sense of social consciousness around uh, offensive terms or icons or such. Anything you've learned 
from the mistakes or the successes others have made that might be just good marketing brand advice? We've seen all kinds of consumer products, right? From rice to syrup to other things since the Black Lives Matter movement and the increase in all of our awareness of social justice. Any insights to share with us on that? You know, the one thing I would say, as I mentioned earlier, is really defining that target audience because you have to know who you're for and who you're creating your brand for. That doesn't mean that's the only brand that grows your business. So even though I mentioned Next Generation Atlantis is our target audience for our brand building, we still have a huge B2B audience that we market. We did a whole arena transformation around attracting a B2B audience, looking at multicultural audiences from a different perspective. But the brand itself is built around Next Gen Atlantis for us. Um, I would say in terms of changing the brands and evolving the brand, a lot of times you have so much brand equity. And I've seen this in multiple ways. It could be a vanity play, which is, you know, I'm just tired of this. You know, we've, we've done this. Let's just make a change. Those I, I frown upon sometimes because I'm like, don't walk away from the equity that you have. Yeah, right. But in other instances, like you mentioned, if there are major reasons why there's a groundswell of support in terms of making a change and you know that it's the best thing for your business or for your community, that's really important. Please do the work, both qualitative and quantitative research-wise. I think sometimes people may just look at a tactic or especially I've done a lot of naming in my career, especially while uh, Turner, you know, naming is tough. It's tough work. And in building a new name and looking at that empty vessel, how are you going to create and attach meaning to that new brand or that new you know, tagline or whatever it is that you're creating? And everything communicates for that. So whether it's the look, the feel, the colors of your uniform, the experience that you have, if you're going to go through with a rebrand, ensure that the rest of your um, the funnel and everything else that you're doing to bring people in is also transformed by this brand transformation, as opposed to thinking that a new logo and a new color will bring new business results. And nine out of 10 times, that's never the case. Now, do you have deep experience on this? Let's transition there. If I'm not mistaken, I think at Turner, you were part of leading the team that, that transitioned Court TV into something new. Walk yeah. us through that story. What was Court TV? Why do we care? What did it become? What were the pitfalls and the successes with that brand transition? You know, it was really interesting because Turner had acquired Court TV um, while I was a part of the organization. And I was promoted to this, you know, brand development manager across all of our entertainment networks. And at the time, Court TV was probably known through the Michael Jackson trial um, as live trial coverage all day long. But Court ends. And so when Court ended, there were other shows that came on. And so whether it were things like Cops or... Um, Nancy, you know, Gray, Nancy Grace. Nancy Grace. Yes, Nancy, Nancy Grace. <laughs> Forget about Nancy Grace. All these other Sorry. kind of crime-related shows that would talk about trial coverage. And what ultimately happened is once Turner acquired it, they looked at the research. And if there wasn't a really big, compelling trial on, you know, the ratings in the, in the evenings shot through the roof and daytime wasn't as strong. But for coverage and being able to retain, you know, relationships with the Comcast and the cable providers... The unique offering that Court TV provided was live trial coverage. Hey, and Lindsay so Lohan network- kept you in business for at least a couple of years, right? <laughs> <laughs> but what I thought was so interesting is because live trial coverage was what the networks were pretty much carried for, we couldn't get rid of it, but the network was branded mm. for daytime right. and not for the evening. Yeah. And so what the rebrand was, was really how do we look at ways that we can generate money from an ad sales perspective by looking at this afternoon brand, which became not reality TV, because I think there was already kind of real world, you know, scripted sort of not unscripted reality happening, but we call it actuality. So there are things that actually happen in the real world. And they built out a slew of shows um, from that rebrand that really kind of spoke to that, you know, the first 48 and those sorts of things. Um, and so that was the challenge before we even got to naming and what true TV was. because It wasn't 
reality TV. People already had a perception of what reality was. But this is true. This is real life. This really happened. Yeah. Um, and so in building that, it was going into people's homes and doing a lot of that ethnographic research that I was a fan of to really understand, like, what is what? Why do you watch it? What is the thing that really gets you? Nancy Grace was absolutely a piece of that. Um, but it was super interesting that it was so compelling that people loved the true nature of it. Like this really happened in real life. And so building out a brand, building out a tagline, working with uh, creative agencies on what that look and feel looks like to bring a younger demographic to the platform and not escape core TV because it was still there, but really focus the brand on what was happening in, in prime time and evenings. Melissa, I know our time is coming to a close. I'd like to talk a little bit about your leadership style from having read your book and having researched you pretty heavily. My sense is you're very comfortable with the concept of vulnerability, vulnerability as a leadership competency. If you were to think introspectively around your strengths and your areas of growth, I'm actually probably most interested, what, what, are the, what are the leadership capabilities that you're still kind of coming into your full on? That if you had a detractor, which I'm sure you do, I'm sure there's one person out there that's either worked for you or does work with you, that finds your style not to maximize their style. What, what are the areas you're working on still that you need to improve upon? You know, it's an awesome question. Because when I got promoted to CMO, the very first thing that I did was ask for an executive coach. My boss was like, why? And I was like, I want to be better. And there was a lot that I don't know in being in this position. And it was probably one of the most insightful, you know, projects that I went through personally, just in terms of development. And I'd say through that, I learned that one of the things that I stink at and I'm really trying to get better on is, is micromanaging. I now really work hard to not micromanage, but being a great doer and being promoted as a doer, a lot of times you'll find that transition from you know, junior level to senior. Now you're leading people, you still want to do. And so the more that I've grown as a leader, the more I've had to kind of take a step back and allow leaders to lead and know that you have the right people and put them in place for that reason. I would say also, you know, my detractors would probably say I'm way too informal sometimes. And I think that is my nature. In general, I kind of have my guiding principles and authenticity is one of them. I don't code switch. I keep it 100. The way that I'm speaking right now is how I talk to my kid, is how I talk to my boss and my team. And so, you know, for me, I look at that as a positive. And I think, especially with this, you know, new workforce coming in, they really can suss out when things aren't um, authentic in all ways. And so I believe that that's me. But, you know, coming into the office in sweats and Jordans and, you know, the night, a, a hawk shirt, is very much my vibe. And I think sometimes the expectation is a CMO of an NBA team will be in a full suit on a game night, you know, and that's not me. And it's also not necessarily the nature of our brand or our city. And so I'm glad to be in a place, like I mentioned, where my values and our my organization's values are aligned. But I do think there's still a perception of what a C-suite uh, executive looks like. And nine out of 10 times, I'm not filling that bucket. Well, I've not experienced any of that in this interview. I was a CMO for a decade of a large public company, and I've actually been quite in awe uh, from what I've learned from you just around brand and brand building. Uh, you mentioned the word code switch. What does that mean? You know, I think culturally, especially, you know, for the African-American community or being a professional in corporate America, there was an idea that you had to look and speak and act a certain way in order to succeed. And I take it personally because uh, my father, as I mentioned, is from Jamaica. When I was younger, he told me, you know, if I didn't dress a certain way, if I didn't have pantyhose and a girdle and, you know, wear pantsuits every day, there's no way that I'll ever get a good job. And he truly believed that. And so I think, you know, for me and maybe some folks a little older than me grew up feeling like I had to represent myself one way in corporate America and that I could be my true self 
at home with my family, with my friends. And, you know, that idea of feeling like there's a game that you're playing, there's a code that you have to switch on and off in order to be uh, successful in this one space is real. And I think in some in some corporations, in some communities, that may be the case. However, you know, with me, I think my creative and art background definitely gave me a different perspective coming in because I was always perceived as the quirky art girl. And because of that, I, I was quirky and I loved it and I embraced it. And I do think I had an experience um, when I first started at Turner. Uh, I remember going to the then president of the network. He interviewed every intern asking how it went. And I remember saying, you know, I love it here, but I don't feel like I fit in. I was the only person of color. Everyone else was older than me. Um, we lived different lives. We were into different things. And I felt like I needed to assimilate and be more like them in order to fit in. Hence the code switch. And I got the best advice I could have ever gotten at 22 years old. And it was like, you are here because of your Caribbean background, because of your creativity, because of your art, because of your energy and all that you bring into this organization. And I'll be doing not just the company, but myself a disservice by not bringing that forth every single day. And I am so grateful for that advice because that's the one thing that I've maintained. And so the idea of not code switching or changing who I am in order to satisfy a feeling or make someone else feel uh, more comfortable is something that I'm proud of. And to be able to have the success that I've had in my career because of that, it's an awesome thing. Melissa, I want to take that a step further because uh, it's kind of how my entire career has been. Even as a, you know, educated, uh, you know, upper middle class white male, I worked for the Walt Disney Company in Orlando for four years. And although I dressed the part, you know, I had the haircut, it was a very formal environment, and I was code-switching for four years. And then I moved to Utah 26 years ago as a single Catholic boy from Orlando moving to Provo, Utah. Do the math. I mean, every leader in every company in Utah was Mormon 25 years ago. Of course, that's changed a lot. And so I was constantly code-switching as not a member of the dominant faith of the state let alone the dominant faith of most of the leaders of most of the companies. That's changed dramatically in the last 26 years. But I don't think your race or your gender precludes you from following in, falling into the, the um, incongruence, the inauthenticity of needing to code switch. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't mean to minimize, it's probably more difficult for people that have, you know, had their race and their age or their gender be an obstacle for them, which I haven't ever had my 100%. race or my gender be an obstacle, yeah. but I can relate to this idea of code switching. How would you respond to what I just said? I'd say that you have a perspective based on where you come from and what you've experienced in your life, but you're not wearing it on your shoulder or on your face through every conversation That's right. that you're in. That's or right. Every room that you walk That's in. right. And yeah. so, you know, throughout most of my career, I've been either the youngest person in the room in addition to the only person of color in the room or yeah. the only woman in the room, and sometimes all of the above. And so there's already a predisposed, biased thought process before I even open my mouth. The number of times I've been somewhere and they're like, oh, are you the assistant? Or, you know, I met I got promoted to CMO and I remember going to park my car in a reserve space here at the arena. And, you know, the very first thing that the security guard said, hey, I'm sorry, ma'am, you can't park here. This is reserved for executives. Because the perception alone, before I even say anything, wow. is that that's not who I am. Clearly, that can't be who I am. And so I think there's a very different um, feeling that I have to walk into the room with than you do. I think one of my biggest takeaways from 
the last couple of years, with which has been generally a very healthy and productive discussion around social justice and the Black Lives Matters movement, was I interviewed um, two very good friends of mine, Stedman Graham, who of course you know is the very accomplished entrepreneur and life partner of Oprah Winfrey, and Greg Moore, who is the former editor of the Denver Post and the Boston Globe. And what I learned from that conversation is that in essence, you know, and I, I brought this up, not you, is what I learned to understand about white privilege is that never in my life did my race ever prevent me from respect or a promotion or no one has ever approached me because of my race and told me about which parking spot was or wasn't potentially right for me. And so this has been a good conversation. I didn't mean to take it here, but it's been helpful for me to have you talk about maybe the different levels of code switching, right? And to recognize that although I've been, I've been, I've experienced that on my journey, it's certainly different and perhaps more deep for a lot of people. A hundred percent. And I'd say, you know, as a black woman, unapologetically, you know, there have definitely been rooms where I may not have felt most welcome in, but a lot of that also has, is internal because it's how I show up and how I want to make sure that I represent not just myself, but, you know, everyone who was here before me and everyone that's going to come after me. And sometimes it's, it gets challenging or tiring to know that you represent an entire race of people by being in a room. But the one thing that I appreciate and now realize, especially as I've grown in my career, is that I have a voice and I'm there to use it. And so many times, even if you get an opportunity to have a seat at the table, there may be a feeling of unease, like, oh man, I, I don't know if I should say that. And you know, being able to speak up and now being able to help make decisions for this organization, I can see a definite impact on what it's meant, not just for myself, but for our community and what we've meant to the city of Atlanta. Uh, to, to, to second that, I recently had the privilege of interviewing the iconic CEO, Ursula Burns, of course, mm-hmm. the former CEO of Xerox, an amazing book she wrote. And she talked on the interview and in the book about uh, when she became in that inner circle of like, you know, Fortune 50, you know, CEOs, not only was she the only African-American woman in the room, everyone was white and they all played golf. And she had to figure out, you know, I'm not that, and I don't play golf. So how do I talk small chat with you at these, you know, CEO roundtables? And it was remarkably in, um, eye-opening to hear her talk about how does she keep her authenticity, but still work in that circle and yeah. have finding commonality. Melissa, you're a class act. Your book is phenomenal. I encourage all of our viewers and listeners to pick up a copy, Easy Read, from Ball Girl to CMO. Wish you great success on your journey. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for investing in all of our listeners. And we hope to have you back someday to learn more from you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>